0: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: This CBS Sunday Morning Podcast is sponsored by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. My portfolio's diversified, my 401k's maxed, but my savings account just sat there till I switched it to Marcus by Goldman Sachs. I'm earning way more now, And just between you and me. My savings are right on track. Feels like I got upgraded for free. You
2: can money. With an online savings account from Marcus by Goldman Sachs, you could earn much more interest than with the largest banks. Sign up at Marcus.com.
3: Comparison made to the three largest U.S. banks measured by total deposits. Rates as of January 21st, 2020 may vary by state. Goldman Sachs Bank USA member FDIC.
4: and this is Sunday morning, still not our usual Sunday morning. I'm filling in for Jane Pauley, again, from Los Angeles. Jane continues to be safe and healthy, and she'll be along a little bit later. Over this past week, we've all watched the toll from the coronavirus pandemic skyrocket. So we'll be checking in with our Dr. John LaPook to find out just what that means going forward. Then it's on to where most of us are working from these days, at home. It certainly has its challenges, as we'll hear from David Pogue in our cover story.
5: We know of only one way to stop the spread of COVID-19. Stay home all the time.
6: How do we keep ourselves intact, physically, mentally, sane, productive, till this hopefully blows over?
5: How do we? Ahead on Sunday morning, tips for working and living at home without going stir-crazy.
4: The adage the show must go on doesn't apply in the middle of a pandemic. Even Broadway has shuttered its doors. And among those sidelined, you'll find the husband and wife team of Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick. This morning, they're talking with Jane Paul.
7: Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick, together in marriage and finally on stage again in Neil Simon's Plaza Suite. All right, what did you say to her,
8: Every now and then, somebody would say, you guys should do something together. And we'd say, what? And they'd say, I'm, I have an appointment.
7: <laughs> Coming up, reflections on courtship, kids, and COVID-19. In this time of
4: involuntary confinement to quarters, something old is remarkably new again. Our Mo pieces it all together.
0: Tired of staring at your phone all day? Well then, break out that jigsaw puzzle you never thought you'd get to. Families everywhere are reconnecting over jigsaw puzzles. Why would families willingly do this when there's so many other home entertainment options? It's very
4: tempting. Very few people can walk by a puzzle and not put in a piece. It's so obvious what you're trying to do. The goal is
0: absolutely right there. Putting it together later on Sunday morning.
4: Martha Teichner ponders what leadership looks like at a time like this. Jill Schlesinger has the story of help wanted, companies that need workers and badly. Jim Gaffigan updates us on how his family is doing, plus tips on book and TV binges for the homebound and more. With most of the headlines dealing with the coronavirus, we'll start with getting an update from our Dr. John LaPook when our Sunday morning for the 29th of March, 2020 continues. First things first, we've been seeing alarming new numbers of coronavirus cases this past week, and we've been learning more about the virus itself. We start by checking in with our Dr. John LaPook.
9: Good morning. I hope you're all holding up as well as possible during this pandemic of COVID-19. I want to talk to you today about something that's been on my mind. I think it's very important, but it's not getting enough attention. And it has to do with testing. I'm not talking about the nasal or throat swab that looks for evidence of active infection. I'm talking about something totally different. It's called a serology or antibody test. It's a simple blood test that looks for evidence of past infection. Now, why is that so important? Well, it's very likely that a lot of us have already been infected with COVID-19 virus, the coronavirus, without even realizing it. We had few symptoms or we had no symptoms. And the reason why that's so important is that if we've already been infected, then the likelihood is We have immunity. We're protected from further infection, at least for a few years if this is acting like other viruses have in the past. Well, those are people who could potentially go back to the front lines, to the workforce. We're talking right now about this friction between saving the economy and treating COVID-19. Well, we should be able to get our arms around both. Technically, this is not hard to do. It's very similar to the kind of test that's done all the time, looking for immunity to things like measles, mumps, and rubella. we have to want to do it and we have to want to do it now. That means cutting red tape, adequately funding it, basically prioritizing it. It's not only important for figuring out who among us is adequately protected and can go back to work. Don't we all want to know if we've already been infected and can just go about our daily lives? And not only that, it's going to give us a better idea of community spread. How widely is the coronavirus spread throughout the country? Finally, I know this is a very rough time. Our lives have been turned upside down, and it's taxing every which way, physically, economically, emotionally. And I'm not trying to sugarcoat this, but remember that about 80% of the time, people have relatively mild cases. And I know I've said this before, but I've got to repeat it again. This is going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. We are going to get through this, I promise, and we're going to get through it together.
4: Working from home may have sounded pretty appealing at first, but there's a technique to it that not everyone can master, except possibly our David Pogue, who has a few tips.
5: Testing, one, two, three. Okay, well, welcome to lockdown. Like anyone else who's got the luxury of working at home, I've been working at home. When I got a call from my producer, David Rothman, As I recall, the conversation went something like this. How are you? I am well, David Rothman. Do you have a good idea for a story? The idea is, what are the rules for working and living at home? And you know what I should do? I should film the entire thing by myself without a crew. Worth a shot. So here we go. How to live and work at home without losing your mind. First of all, curse that virus. But bless high-speed internet. The internet is our lifeline through this thing. It's how we socialize. It's our entertainment. It's how business gets done. This is the internet's big moment. We
6: all became the Brady Bunch.
5: It's incredible what's going on over video chat these days. Meetings, of course. There we go, Jalen. But also exercise classes. Don't forget both directions. I do it everywhere. Church services.
9: We pray for those who are dealing with physical illness.
10: <laughs>
5: Game nights.
10: Okay, Dilly gets a point, and so does Annie's team.
5: Even weddings. And of course, concerts. <laughs> So here's the first rule of lockdown life, learn to use Zoom. Now there's a lot of great video chatting programs out there, there's Skype, FaceTime, Google Hangouts, but Zoom is sort of the hero of the coronavirus era because it's free, the picture is very stable, it's easy to use, and it can handle a lot of people in the meeting at once. I'll give you a little tutorial. To get a free account, you visit the website zoom.us and supply your email address. Then, whenever you want to start a video chat, you click host a meeting with video on, click invite, click copy invitation, and then send that link to your co-conspirators. All they have to do is click that link, and they show up on your screen like this.
3: Hi, Connor. Hey, Nancy, yeah. how you doing?
5: How you doing? <laughs> How's your dog? You might recognize a few of these characters who have never before appeared on your screen simultaneously there's a little lesson on how to use zoom and you all are part of that
11: because if we can do it anyone can do it <laughs> oh
5: i wasn't going to say it but uh. <laughs> yep i invited the entire cast of cbs sunday morning to join me for a little social distancing over video chat
10: Yeah, curled
12: up in the fetal position with brussels sprouts and uh, a robe
13: hey hey She just asked me, she said, do they see me? (laughs) (laughs) This is Robbie. (gasps) Oh, Oh, (laughs) cute. Hi. Hey, ladies, what are we doing about hair color?
5: And here's a tip for all those video calls. You want the source of light in front of you. Observe. Window beside me, I look fine. Window behind me, I'm in the witness protection program. Those video meetings are a good example of rule number two. It's really important to keep in good social contact.
6: As human beings, we've always sought people out to be with for a good reason. That's the way we were designed. And mm-hmm. now you're asking us in the day of constant social connectivity to not have that.
5: I'm on a Zoom call with Sunam Hafiz. She's a neuropsychologist at Columbia University.
6: Block a time to have FaceTime or a phone call with a couple of people in your life that A, you need to check in with, just have a laugh, maybe don't talk about the coronavirus all the time. You know, limit your intake of the rough um, days. Are you forcing your time. child out of the I'm camera? So, so sorry. Yeah. How did you get
10: hurt? Yeah. Oh, okay. And
6: there's your rule
5: number three. Kids and pets are now officially allowed at work. How are you, manage- How are you managing to, to get through this?
6: Um, I'm managing. Like everyone else, I, I get up, I make a list of things that I have to do.
5: <laughs> Which brings us to rule number four. Stick to a routine. It's a lot easier to get in the mood for being productive if you stick to a schedule. Some people find it useful to get dressed up for work, even if they're not going to see anybody all day. And when work is over, just because you can't go out to the movies doesn't mean you can't watch movies together. At NetflixParty.com, you can install a plug-in feature into the Chrome web browser that lets you watch movies simultaneously with your friends all over the country. Making your snarky comments in the little panel on the side. Finally, rule number five. It's called social distancing not house arrest. You're allowed to go outside. And you should. Take walks with people who live with you. Keep clear of other people, of course, but try to get out there every day. You can even have small gatherings in person, as long as you keep that distance. I know some local kids who all got sent home by their colleges, so they hang out in the parking lot of their old middle school.
3: My mom just doesn't understand. Yeah, I can send you the email.
5: And my local librarian and her neighbors meet each evening in their apartment doorways for what they call cocktails in the foyer. It's social distancing with an emphasis on social.
10: Oh, wow, happy birthday!
5: Eventually, life will get back to normal. But in the meantime, as Sonam Hafiz says, there's room for more than one emotion
6: you know, most of us should really count our blessings. I oscillate between the space of, you know, sort of panic, distress, and sadness to utter gratitude for having a roof over my head and having a pantry stocked with food. There's so many people who who don't have that right now.
5: You know what? The rules for staying sane at home aren't so hard to follow. Rely on the internet, stay social, stick to a routine, take walks. Life goes on. You just have to go at it a little differently.
4: There was a time in the not-too-distant past when hand-washing, even for doctors, wasn't considered part of basic hygiene. Really. That is, until one man sounded the alarm. You really have to hand it to Ignaz Semmelweis, a 19th century Hungarian doctor. Because it was Semmelweis who determined after studying maternity ward deaths that it was hand-washing by doctors that could make all the difference between life and death. Far from welcoming his insight, though, fellow doctors actually rejected it. And Semmelweis went on to die in an insane asylum of sepsis, the very thing he devoted himself to fighting. Later generations came to recognize the truth of his discovery, And, of course, the need for thorough hand-washing has never been more important than now. We're told that we should scrub our hands for at least 20 seconds. As you probably heard, that is roughly the time it takes to sing Happy Birthday from beginning to end twice. Hand-washing has become such a big thing now that this music video from Vietnam... It's become something of an international internet sensation. So, soap up. We know death and taxes are certain. You may not know, though, that so is the U.S. Census. The Constitution tells us to count ourselves every 10 years. But, as Chip Reed tells us, COVID-19 makes that infinitely more difficult.
2: This is Tuksuk Bay, Alaska, on the Bering Sea, about as far away from it all as you can get and still be in the United States. And this is Stephen Dillingham, director of the U.S. Census Bureau, who flew in on a frigid January day to count the very first person in our nation's 2020 census, the constitutionally mandated, once a decade, count of every single person within our borders.
12: The 2020 census has begun.
2: It was very
0: emotional to me. The entire village had gathered. They were playing native
2: music. They were celebrating the 2020 census. And I just hope we can replicate that across the nation. It seems Stephen Dillingham is not alone in his passion for the census.
12: How much do you know about the census? Not much. Okay.
2: In February, we traveled to Houston, Texas, where activists went door to door to make sure their communities will be fully counted.
7: Some people are very happy to see us. Uh, Some people uh, don't
10: even open the door.
2: Balai Andargi says many people have no idea how important the census is. Not only does it determine how many votes each state gets in Congress, but also how trillions of federal dollars will be divvied up over the next decade.
7: They need to know the benefits, you know, the school lunches, the road construction, and uh, the uh, parks health care.
2: Where does the census rank on your list of priorities? And it's a long list.
10: It's pretty much near the very top. So
2: Judge Lena Hidalgo is the executive right? of Harris yeah. County, the largest county in Texas, which includes Houston, the nation's most diverse big city.
10: For every person who doesn't respond to the census, we lose around a thousand dollars
2: Hidalgo says in the 2010 census, Latinos, especially immigrants, were significantly undercounted. One of the biggest challenges in 2020, she says, is fear.
10: Uh, You know, there was uh, a fight about whether the census would include a citizenship question. So folks who are seeing on TV, you know, families being torn apart, who perhaps know somebody who's been deported, are now afraid that the census is going to ask them whether or not they're U.S. citizens.
2: Last year, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected a Trump administration proposal for the census to demand everyone's citizenship status. But Hidalgo says the damage is already done.
10: The community's heard so much about it that we're now having to debunk the myth that it is part of the census.
2: You might be surprised by just how long the idea of a census has been around. The census comes up again and again in the Old Testament. In a new history of the census, author Andrew Whitby cites the example of Exodus when Moses ordered a count of all males age 20 and older.
7: Behold his mighty hand.
2: The census plays a major role in the New Testament, too. Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth, up in the north, but Jesus was born in Bethlehem, about 100 miles away. Why did they go to Bethlehem?
14: The ostensible reason in the Bible is that there was a a Roman census called, that that Caesar Augustus had called a, had decreed that there should be a census of the entire Roman world.
2: The first U.S. census census was was carried out in 1790, one year after George Washington was sworn in as president. In less than 100 years, the population had increased tenfold, and Herman Hollerith invented an electric tabulating machine to count all those people. And in case you didn't know, Hollerith's 19th century startup business became IBM. IBM. Yeah, yeah. Would it be fair to say that the census has actually played a role in the invention or, or development of the computer? Yeah, I would say that. I would say. Score one for the census. And it's a good thing Hollerith came along because, as the late Richard Threlkeld explained on Sunday morning 40 years ago,
4: In 1890, Americans had to answer 470 questions, including one that wanted to know if there were any idiots in the family.
2: Lucky for us, today there are just nine basic questions. Yet the very simplicity and importance of the census have recently tempted politicians to disguise fundraising appeals as census forms, including these from the Republican National Committee and the Trump campaign.
11: The census is a public treasure. It is our collective information. And so for some organization, in this case the Republican National Committee and the later President Trump's campaign committee, to try to hijack... This nonpartisan public trust in the census for personal political gain is wrong.
2: California Democratic Congresswoman Katie Porter sits on the committee that oversees the Census Bureau. In February, she confronted Census Director Stephen Dillingham.
11: Have you asked the RNC to cease and desist from using the term 2020 census or official census in its mailings? Uh, C- Congresswoman, I, I would have to look and see.
2: I don't, I'm not sure who, who sent that out. And, and you're going to hold Mr. Dillingham's feet to the fire on
11: that? 100%. Point. Whether you're a political appointee or not, you take on the job. It's the exact same thing for the director of the Centers for Disease Control. It's the same thing for the director of the census. You made a commitment to the American people.
2: Or do you feel pressure from this White House and the, the Republican Party to do this count in a way that they would like? No, I do not. And soon after our interview, the RNC promised to stop using the word census in its mailings, and Facebook has dropped the Trump ads. The coronavirus, of course, poses an entirely different and unprecedented uh, challenge to the census. The Census Bureau encourages Americans to fill out the census online, and they report that close to one-third of households have already responded, pandemic or not. Steve Dillingham says the work of the Census Bureau is going forward. Hello. Hi there. Bottom line, your messages respond online, on the phone, or by mail, and then we won't come knocking on your door. Absolutely. And that's the message
0: we hope will resonate with everyone.
4: It seems like Purell is everywhere these days, except at stores where they're struggling to keep up with demand. And that's even with the company working around the clock keep up the stock. Hard to believe that not too long ago no one had ever heard of Purell.
9: I guess you could describe it as a 10-year overnight success story.
4: Mike Richardson is an industry analyst at the Fridonia Group.
9: They held on to the idea and kept pushing it. Eventually, it became probably a far greater success than they would have imagined at the outset.
4: That idea was Purell what's become a pretty prized possession in our desperate attempt to keep our hands virus-free. It's made by Gojo Industries, a family-owned business. Rebecca Jarvis talked to then-CEO Joe Canfer back in 2013.
9: My Aunt Goldie and Uncle Jerry, at the beginning in 1946, developed a hand cleaner to get grease and carbon black off of uh, working people's hands. And it was called Gojo, uh, the namesake of our company today.
4: Uncle Jerry gave Joe Canfer half the company when he was just in his 20s. And then, in the late 80s, finally, the Eureka moment. Gojo perfected an alcohol-based hand sanitizer that was pretty easy on the skin. But
9: just, what do you call it? I wanted to name the product Flash, because I was so excited. It worked in a flash, I thought, and I thought I was being quite clever.
4: In the end, PureL, as in pure, won out. But it took a while to clean up on the invention. Gojo actually lost money on Purell for years. Until 2002, when the CDC determined that alcohol-based products were indeed effective in cleansing hands. Today, Purell really isn't a luxury. Most families wonder what they would do without it. Vindicating, in a sense, what Joe Kafner told us seven years ago about the virtues of having your
9: own company. I probably would have been fired if I were working for anybody else, but uh, uh, eventually uh, it paid off.
4: The impact of the coronavirus on our economy is pretty clear. It has been another wild week of ups and downs. But despite record jobless figures, some businesses are actually hiring. They
15: need workers, and badly. Here's money correspondent Jill Schlesinger. The U.S. economy has come to a screeching halt and business by business, person by person, the damage is piling up. Elmer Mexicanos has been a bartender in San Francisco for 10 years.
3: I mean, you go from being busy to having nothing really.
15: And the new restaurant he planned to open, it's on hold.
3: The one thing that kind of keeps me up at night, which is like, how do you provide for, for your family?
15: Like Mexicanos, a lot of people across the country are losing sleep. We've just learned that weekly jobless claims totaled 3.28 million in the most recent week measured. Can you put that in historical context for us? Sure. So
13: millions of jobless claims in just one week, that is about five times the amount that we received in any of the peak weeks around the financial crisis or any of the deeper downturns, say, in the 1980s. It's an extraordinary number.
15: And a sobering one, at that? Yes. And Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. economist, Ellen Zentner, has more sobering news. You and your associates at Morgan Stanley believe that economic output in the second quarter is going to drop by 30 percent from a year ago. What is the backdrop for that, and how did you come to that number? Yes,
13: yeah, so those are really grim numbers, um, but it's the reality that, you know, this is unlike any other economic downturn that we've gone into. Companies are leading us to believe that anywhere from 75 to 90% of economic activity has been cut. In important areas, you have a car dealership in New Jersey saying we used to sell 45 cars a day. Now we're selling one car a day. Facing an unprecedented crisis,
15: the government is taking unprecedented measures. There's the enormous $2 trillion federal lifeline to businesses and families. And the Federal Reserve is feverishly rolling out plans to keep money flowing throughout the financial system it might feel like a nightmare repeat of the recession that began in 2008, but this time is actually
13: different. It's a very sharp drop into recession, but we don't expect this recession to be as long lived as prior recessions because this is dictated by the evolution of the virus. And our biotechnology analysts believe that the peak in cases will come somewhere in late April, And thereafter, as some of these social distancing measures recede, we can start to resume what a normal pace of activity looks like.
15: But even as job losses multiply, some businesses are looking to hire tens of thousands of people, like Dollar General, which has more than 16,000 stores across the country.
13: We continue to see a heightened demand for the essential products that we sell. Everything from basic foods to cleaning supplies, paper products, health items, baby items, diapers. Crystal
15: Gesemi is the spokesperson for Dollar General.
13: Tell us about your plans to
15: hire more. We hear 50,000 new people?
13: Correct. So we're planning to add up to 50,000 new employees by the end of April to help support some of our store our distribution center and our private fleet operations and so while we anticipate some of these jobs being temporary to begin with we have a pretty strong track record of job growth and we do see some long-term career opportunities for some of these folks who may be coming on during this time
15: and as americans cocoon in their homes virtual businesses are finding new customers like OutSchool, which offers online classes to elementary through high school age kids.
16: Since launching in 2017, we had 80,000 students attend more than 300,000 live class hours. So we were you know, growing very nicely and, and already had a huge community. But in, just in the past week, since we saw the wave of mass school closures, we've had another 20,000 students join classes
15: Amir Natu is the CEO of OutSchool. With this increased demand, these 20,000 extra people who are coming onto your platform, you're seeking new teachers to help you out. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
16: Yes, exactly. You know, our classes are selling out, and we are seeking to onboard another 5,000 in the next two weeks. We want to um, find teachers who maybe have some downtime outside of their school teaching or former teachers. Um, and people who may be, um, you know, yoga teachers or music and dance instructors.
15: Economics has been called the dismal science, and times right now are indeed dismal. But Ellen
13: Zentner is not
15: all doom and gloom.
13: It's still going to be a, a long, slow slog back to the type of labor market we had prior to the coronavirus outbreak. But we will get there. We will get there over time.
3: Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery.
4: Once again this weekend, we're offering suggestions for filling up all those long hours at home. To start us off, Daniel Feinberg, TV critic
14: for The Hollywood Reporter. With movie theaters and public performance venues shut down and countless workers in quarantine, much of the population is eyeing a future spent disproportionately glued to our couches looking for good things to watch on television. In short, we're becoming a nation of TV critics. As somebody who was on this bandwagon professionally long before various public officials made it mandatory, allow me to offer some advice. First off, even if actual Hollywood production has ground to a halt, the crisis hit us just as some of TV's best shows were launching new seasons.
3: No, no, Hi! No, no, don't come over here, don't come over here. Don't.
14: Pamela many? Adlon's FX comedy Better Things is compassionate, funny, and uncomfortably realistic. AMC's Better Call Saul may not be better than think? Breaking You're Bad, good. but it's it far closer than anybody could have imagined. And if you like twisty, somewhat confusing mythology mixed with lots of robots, HBO's Westworld is overstuffed. So complicated. So that's a lot to watch right there. This is also the perfect moment for rainy day shows, those ambitious or long-running TV series that you've been putting off until you could give them the concentration they deserve. Mine include Netflix's Peaky Blinders and Fauda, But if you haven't watched all-time classics like The Wire or The Leftovers or Rectify, no more excuses seeking something funny and emotional. Surprise. Try Freeform's unusual family comedy Everything's Gonna Be Okay. Yeah, I'm cool.
10: Your torso's too long.
14: And this may be the perfect moment for Parks and Recreation, the most hopeful show ever made about government dysfunction. Am I interrupting something important?
12: Impossible. I work for the government.
14: Missing travel? HBO's My Brilliant Friend, adapted from Elena Ferranti's novels, is like a passport to an Italy from a different era. Come <laughs> Or check out Hulu's underrated comedy Rami, which wrapped its first season with two great episodes filmed in Egypt. And if you're exhausted by your family... Security! ...catch up on HBO's Succession. (laughs) A reminder that no matter how crazy your relatives are making you, it could always be much, much worse. You back off! This is executive-level business! All told, that's hours and hours of television that should offer you something we all could use right now. Distraction. From the outside world.
4: What does true leadership look like during a national crisis? Martha Teichner has been searching
11: for answers. As we come on the air tonight, the number of coronavirus cases in the United States is growing exponentially.
12: It's a different kind of reality TV. For a change, it's actually real. Nowhere has been harder hit than right here in the New York metro area. Must see viewing for a homebound nation. This is going to be one of those moments they're going to write about
4: and they're going to talk about for generations. Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York. What am I going to do with 400 ventilators
12: when I need 30,000? You pick the 26,000 people who are going to die. Without naming the president, begging, cajoling, goading the federal government to take action.
4: If someone is unhappy, somebody wants to blame someone or complain about someone, uh, blame
12: me. I don't take responsibility at all. And there is President Donald Trump with another take on responsibility and reality. I would love to have the country opened up and they're uh, just raring
8: to go by Easter.
12: The other major player in this drama of dueling daily briefings, Dr. Anthony Fauci from the National Institutes of Health, trusted scientist, setting the record straight. Obviously, no one is going to want to tone down things when you see what's going on in a place like New York City. I mean, I mean that's just, you know, good public health practice and common sense. When Fauci isn't standing next to the president, a concerned public wonders why. All of which begs the question.
14: Yeah, thank you, very much. you don't have to have social distancing
9: I've from dogs. Hi, how are you?
12: What does leadership look like in this time of crisis?
9: Thanks, Governor. Thank you. Thank you.
12: Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland would argue leadership... Looks like the nation's governors, far out in front of the feds in response to COVID-19, united in their bipartisan push to get what they need. A Monmouth University poll released last week found that 72 percent of Americans think their governor is doing a good job managing coronavirus, compared to 50 percent who think the president is. What is essential and non-essential uh, is essentially what You think it is. We're learning governors' names as their states struggle. Cuomo of New York, Inslee of Washington, DeWine of Ohio, Whitmer of Michigan. Hogan, a popular Republican in an overwhelmingly Democratic state, is also chairman of the National Governors Association. We spoke outdoors at a distance in Annapolis, Maryland's capital.
9: I think this has been a time where governors really have led. We've been on the front lines, and we've stepped up uh, to make those tough decisions, uh, But and, and governors on both sides of the aisle, um, and, but also to push for more action from the federal level.
12: And why did you feel that that was necessary?
9: Well, because lives were at stake, <laughs> because our citizens needed us to.
12: Is there any precedent for governors taking the lead?
1: When yes. About, when I think about FDR and the situation in the Depression, um, before he became president. and He's the governor of New York.
12: Historian Doris Kearns Goodwin's latest book is Leadership in Turbulent Times, published by Simon & Schuster, part of Viacom CBS.
1: And New York State was overwhelmed by the Depression, so he started taking action on his own, the first person in the nation as a governor to mobilize a comprehensive relief program.
12: Governor Franklin Delano Roosevelt filled the power vacuum left by President Herbert Hoover in the aftermath of the stock market crash in 1929. Hoover opposed federal intervention. He left it to the states and local governments to cope as the U.S. economy collapsed and the unemployment rate approached 25 percent. FDR was elected president in 1932, promising to take
1: charge. This nation is asking for action, and action now. In his inauguration, he said, the reason we have a problem now was a failure of leadership. I've been elected president, it's a gift to me, and I'm assuming that responsibility. Broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency
4: as great as the power that would be given to me
1: if we were in fact invaded by a foreign foe. All of the major leaders that are the three historic leaders in our country's history, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and FDR, faced a crisis, and they handled it really well. A crisis is a moment when the nation needs you.
12: How does this crisis stack up against World War II, the Depression, and so on? Is this truly a Presidency-defining crisis?
1: There's no question that this is a defining crisis for our generation, in my judgment. And as a result of it being a defining time for our generation, it's going to be a defining time for the President. History will, will only know as time goes by, and it depends on how it all turns out, obviously, for how history will define the President's leadership.
12: And how every other leader is judged as well. Where we are today,
4: you will be In three weeks or four weeks, we are your future. We have to get back to work. Our people want to work. They want to go back.
0: They have to go back.
12: Who's right, the president or public health officials who say it's too soon? Who will win that argument? With what result? The a's are 96. The nays are zero. And when the Senate passed the $2 trillion rescue package unanimously...
4: I'm proud to announce tonight not a single senator voted against
12: this $2 trillion rescue bill. Was that a glimmer of hope that a virulent disease had neutralized the virulent partisanship that's paralyzed Washington for so long? Was it leadership or a temporary truce? It's early days still, history's judgment premature. In the meantime, history can remind us how other Americans felt as they were living through earlier crises.
1: They don't know that it's going to turn out all right. They have to have faith. And one thing that history can do is to show you that somehow this country has lived through these tough times before, and we've gotten through it. And I think it gives us that perspective and that solace to make us feel not alone.
4: With Broadway darkened for the duration, let's check in with Jane Pauley who recently spent time with two of its biggest stars.
7: Thanks, Lee. Even though it wasn't all that long ago, it seems that my conversation with Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick dates back to another era. And in a way, it does. Remember walking through a crowded park on a beautiful day? He grew up right here, right down the street. Just three weeks ago, before there was no place but home, actors Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick showed off one of their favorite spots.
17: We're in the famous, lower the park in New York, like it, Washington Square Park. The heart of the village, right?
7: The park holds 30 years of memories for this longtime couple. All these newfangled buildings everywhere. Shared memories they don't often share
17: we were just dating i ran into matthew and he was on a payphone and i was carrying a mattress with my friend john
7: that was the beginning of a long relationship but a pretty short story the two of you how quickly did you know it was a complicated it was
17: i don't remember we we're not going to talk about this part this is the part we don't talk about but we're not practiced have... what's your answer to the question from the first time we were together we've never been apart since
7: that's true. Sorry. Lately, they're spending even more time together.
17: We've been watching Columbo at night. We've been playing a lot of games, a lot of cooking, a lot of laundry.
7: The couple, along with other artists, recently joined Rosie O'Donnell for a live-streamed benefit for the Actors Fund, a nonprofit.
10: I was walking on Broadway back when you could, and I saw the theater that you guys were going to open in.
7: Parker and Broderick were set to co-star in a revival of Neil Simon's Plaza Suite. But the very day they were to begin performances, theaters were shut down to slow the spread of COVID-19. Hello, Sam. Plaza Suite is one of the few new shows still expected to open. Someday. Anytime you want to see one of oh, my Oh, I couldn't do that. Why not? I couldn't. I couldn't impose like that. Just last month, the stars were playing to sold out houses in Boston and getting set to bring the play to Broadway. And of course, the plastic won't be. Here. For the first time since its hit run more than 50 years ago. This is room 719. <laughs> Sweet 719. <laughs> It's also the first time Broderick and Parker have acted together since they were married 23 years ago.
17: We had basically come to the conclusion, without ever having said it, that we will never really work together.
8: Yeah, every now and then somebody would say, you guys should do something together. And we'd say,
7: what? And they'd say, I have an appointment. (laughs) And Parker had her own reason for hesitating.
17: Actually, what I felt was, oh, God, no, really because you know each other in such a different way, but I think it has been incredibly pleasant. Get out of my way. So come out, just talk nicely to her. We already had nice talking, now we're going to have door breaking.
7: Audiences have been delighted.
8: At the very beginning, as soon as Miss Parker was uh, revealed, they were just very, very happy to be here. And you can't help but feel... Reassured by that.
7: In this comedy about marriage, they appear as three different couples what? who check into the same Plaza Suite. It's a simple question: How old are you? I don't want to play. Act one: Karen and Sam are celebrating an awkward wedding anniversary.
1: For God's sake, Miriam!
10: What are you so nervous about?
7: Huh? Act two: Jesse, a Hollywood producer. Hoping for sparks with his high school flame, Muriel. That character the is the most fun for you because <laughs> of your get I do have a really nice outfit. <laughs> Where's Mimsy? Promise you're not going to blame me? Finally, Norma and Roy.
17: I didn't do anything, but I don't want to get blamed for it.
7: Parents of the bride,
17: who's got cold feet. They are moments away from handing off their daughter, who has locked herself in the bathroom. Oh,
7: Roy, don't, do of course, it's a challenge to change characters multiple times in one night. Get it, doctor. But Parker and Broderick are experienced actors, each with decades on stage and screen. Movie fans may still know him best from Ferris Bueller's Day Off.
8: Yeah, I like it 80% as much as they do.
7: And, of course, she's most famous as the iconic Carrie Bradshaw on Sex and the City. Damn.
13: It would have been so cool if I hadn't looked back.
7: Would a young Carrie Bradshaw have dated Ferris Bueller? I don't know if Ferris Bueller would have dated Carrie Bradshaw.
8: Well, one is DC and the other is Marvel.
7: (laughs) Oh. Broderick not only knows comic books, he's a devoted baseball fan. And so is she. Before we had too many kids, we had a dream we were going to... Not too many
17: kids. I mean, before we had so many children that rightfully took up our time, we had a dream before all the baseball stadiums changed, we were going to hit every single one in the country.
7: How many of them are there, There's children? We have three.
17: That we know about.
7: (laughs) No, we're sure. We're sure. They have two girls, 10-year-old twins, and a 17-year-old son. Actors, any of them? All of them? sounds like one of them. Sounds sounds like one of the girls.
17: Yeah, which is an absolute surprise. But she did clarify that the other day, and said she wants to get her degree in education because she really wants to be a teacher. And I said that's a fine and good idea. And then you can always go to acting school.
8: These are funny conversations with a ten-year-old, you know. Yeah.
17: But she
7: and um, the other. I think
8: you could pass the bar.
7: (laughs) Certainly. (laughs) They both started young. At 13, she was Annie, and at 17, he made his stage debut alongside his dad, the late actor James Broderick.
17: I'll be so happy to keep his dinner warm.
7: Yes. That was her happy song in 1995's How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Happy to keep his dinner warm. It was the only time they'd ever worked together before Plaza Suite. J. Pierpont. Matthew Broderick would be the man you're singing
17: about. Yes. Of course. She was singing about Ponty. Ponte. J. Pierpont Finch.
7: in yeah. <laughs> Ponty. Oh, Ponty! (laughs) Great chemistry, both on stage and off. off. I mean, we've spent more time together in the last
17: two and a half, three months than we've spent since we were recording, really sincerely. What
7: was I just doing?
17: Watching yourself like a hawk.
7: While they're still seeing a lot of each other, audiences will have to wait to see them live on stage. But homebound fans can still spend quality time with some old friends. Matthew Broderick, and Sarah Jessica Parker. We both
17: feel so lucky, so privileged, because how many great actors who haven't had the sort of success that you think that they're deserving of. If you're not cognizant of that all the time,
7: you're a fool and an ingrate, and I'm enormously grateful. In conversation with Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick. I hope you're all doing well, and I'll be seeing you again next Sunday morning.
4: How best to spend those long, long hours of isolation at home? Well, how about the puzzling pastime that Morocco has been pursuing? Last year,
0: when I purchased this thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle of a 1933 Diego Rivera mural, I didn't expect to get to it until I was, I don't know, 80? Well, things have changed. I'm not the only one. All across the country, people are pulling out their puzzles to pass the time. In fact, the very first jigsaw puzzle is said to have been made by a London mapmaker in the 1760s.
10: His name was John Spilsbury.
0: Anne Williams is a jigsaw puzzle historian.
10: He pasted a map onto a thin piece of wood and he used a scroll saw to cut it up England would be one piece, Germany would be another piece. He marketed these to the very affluent and influential people as a tool to teach their children geography.
0: And Anne, I gotta say, a jigsaw puzzle is a great way to learn geography.
10: Oh, absolutely. I think just about everybody spent some time in their childhood putting a map of the United States together.
0: Soon, puzzles expanded their reach beyond learning.
10: So nursery rhyme, fairy tale subjects, ships and trains.
0: Early in the 20th century, gaming company Parker Brothers came up with the idea of interlocking pieces, each one cut by hand, mostly, says Williams, by
10: women. Parker Brothers claimed that it hired women because they already knew how to sew. A treadle sewing machine looked very much like a treadle scroll saw, so they were easy to train. And they didn't mention that they could pay the women a lot less.
0: It was during the Great Depression that the popularity of jigsaw puzzles exploded.
4: It used to be crossword puzzles in Backgammon and mahjong. Now it's jigsaw, and it's got the whole country steamed up.
10: 30 million households in the United States were absorbing 10 million jigsaw puzzles every week.
0: Puzzles were entertainment and employment.
10: There were so many people out of work. You could buy a scroll saw. A jigsaw for $20. They set up the saw in their kitchen or their basement, started making jigsaw puzzles and selling them to their neighbors or renting them out through the local drugstore.
0: Rose and Mark Stevens of Peacetime Puzzles in Northwood, New Hampshire, have been making and selling puzzles for 25
10: years. We go through spells. Sometimes Thorns it's butterflies.
9: we in
4: for several years. Yeah.
9: Couldn't get enough. Puzzles of frogs. Really? Frogs. Lighthouses. Where people collect lighthouses. You know? Yeah. That was a big big thing for a couple of years. What
0: are some of the recent crazes? Dogs.
1: Recent birds. Owls. Winter balls.
0: Owls merry. Yeah, owls. But the bulk of their business comes from personalized puzzles.
9: You upload your picture of your dog uh, to the website. Rose gets it, blows it up, prints it out on the large format printers. And I mount it on cardboard and die cut it, package it.
0: And then ship it. They've been privy to moments both poignant and
9: puzzling. We had a wedding picture, and they wanted a person taken out of the picture. I thought that was cute.
4: (laughs) I I didn't ask the story. I I wanted to make up my own story on that (laughs) one. And did you do it?
10: (laughs) You can be pretty creative. It sounds like,
0: I mean, I'm not being cute here. It sounds like you guys are kind of in an essential business.
14: It is for us. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you ask a puzzler
10: that runs out of puzzles, and they'll tell you
14: it's. Oh, people it, get they, they get concerned. You yeah. know, they only have three puzzles left. We, yeah, we get that all
10: the time. They yeah. they come in and they they look all distraught. Like, what's the matter? I'm almost out of puzzles.
0: As for me, I'm not out of puzzles. I have still got a long way to go with this one. Hey, at least I got the edges done.
6: Uh, get in there.
4: Time for more diversions for the homebound. This time around, books.
16: Hello, I'm Ron Charles. I write about books for the Washington Post. Everybody is anxious about how the coronavirus is affecting our friends and loved ones, but we also need balance in our lives, particularly in stressful times like these. Fortunately, the year has already given us a number of great books that can entertain you, transport you, maybe even inspire you. Separation Anxiety is a comic novel by Laura Zygman. The narrator is a 50-year-old woman who just can't take it anymore. Her career is evaporated, her marriage is over, but her husband can't afford to move out, which makes for a really awkward home life. One day, while pining for the good old days, she puts on a baby sling, then sees the family dog, picks her up, and puts it in it. Pretty soon, she can't imagine why everyone isn't wearing a dog. Deacon King Kong by James McBride is a funny, deeply moving story, packed full of big characters, around a Brooklyn housing project in 1969. It starts when an old deacon of the local church shoots a legendary drug dealer. He doesn't kill him, but he definitely starts something. Told in McBride's exuberant prose, the story embraces the whole spectrum of America. Louise Erdrich has written more than a dozen books about Native Americans, Her new novel, The Night Watchman, is a story inspired by the life of her grandfather. He was a leader of the Turtle Mountain Chippewa tribe in the 1950s when the U.S. Congress tried to cancel its treaties with Native Americans and terminate the rights of Indian tribes. In this powerful novel, Erdrich describes how one man fought back and helped save his community. Armchair historians will enjoy the latest from Eric Larson, The Splendid and the Vile is about Winston Churchill during a single year of World War II when Hitler came close to breaking England. Larson tells the big story of the war while also exploring the personal details of Churchill's life and his family. And finally, a special plea. Remember that a lot of bookstores have closed their doors this week to help slow the spread of the coronavirus, but many of those stores are still taking orders by phone or online, and they'd be happy to help you get a copy of one of these books or recommend something else you might enjoy.
4: Book tips from Ron Charles of the Washington Post. Now, before we take our leave this morning, a nod to those bound by an ancient promise with a very modern purpose, the Hippocratic Oath. It's a contract more than 2,000 years old, and while it's evolved over the millennia, it is perhaps more sacred now than ever, especially the world mired in a health crisis that even Hippocrates himself could only have feared. One modern version of the oath reads in part, I will remember that there is art to medicine as well as science, and that warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. Today, there is no chemist's drug to fight the coronavirus, not yet anyway. And on top of that, as we've heard, masks, gowns, and gloves, those paper-thin barriers between sickness and health are in impossibly high demand, which makes the oath's warmth, care, and understanding promise pretty dangerous to keep. Our exhausted doctors and nurses are often forced to reuse masks. Some are simply going without. That they soon leave many of our health care workers unprotected, charging up this viral hill every day, knowing they may die on it. It's becoming increasingly possible that the physician you have today could be another physician's patient tomorrow. There is no greater calling than tending to the sick and the suffering, but it doesn't require an oath. What it requires is courage, selflessness, and compassion all traits seemingly in ample supply in our medical community, thank goodness, because these are the souls who are our best hope. Next week on Sunday morning... Carl, stop talking for one minute. Okay. Okay. Wow, I can't believe it. Stop talking. Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner help us weather the storm. I'm Lee Cowan. We hope you're staying safe and healthy wherever you're hunkering down. As you heard, Jane will be back next week from somewhere. Thanks for being with us. Join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning.